Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. We're your hosts, Dr. Narjus Duma and Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Associate Professor at Georgetown University. And I'm Dr. Narjus Duma, Assistant Professor and Thoracic Oncologist at the University of Wisconsin. We are your hosts for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We're grateful to Dr. Ross Su for joining us today. Dr. Su is a senior consultant in the Department of Hematology and Oncology at the National University Cancer Institute, Singapore. Together with Dr. Yilong Wu and Dr. Daniel Tan, Ross just finished chairing the IASLC 2020 World Conference on Lung Cancer. Ross, congratulations on a fantastic meeting, and thank you for making the time to be here today. Yes. Hi, Steve and Najus. Thanks very much for having me on this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. So now it's time to get into the science presented and particularly to Ross' stories about chairing the World Conference on Lung Cancer in the middle of the pandemic. But first, let's took a look at the numbers. So the World Conference on Lung Cancer 2020 was unique. First, because the conference was entirely virtual. And also we postponed the meeting date. Initially, we were scheduled to meet in August of 2020, but the conference was postponed to January of 2021, and actually in two separate events. First was the virtual presidential symposium in August, and then the full virtual war conference on lung cancer this last week. As per today, registration from the January war conference on lung cancer was over 6,300 registrants for 95 countries. There were notable abstracts presented in all disciplines from presenters from across the world, many of which we will talk a little bit today. The program is recorded and will be available on the meeting platform all the way to the end of April. Congratulations on on pretty impressive numbers, Ross. You must be exhausted, uh, exhilarated after concluding this meeting. Before we start, can, can we just hear what that was like? I mean, you signed up years ago to chair a regular WCLC and then ended up chairing two fully virtual meetings with really uh, no template on how to do that. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I actually am more relieved that the meeting's over. Despite the relief, actually it was a really fantastic experience uh, handling uh, a multidisciplinary global oncology conference. And uh, one aspect that I have been really happy about is actually giving the younger oncologists uh, the opportunity to be involved in planning the program, the opportunity to speak, or the chair session. Working with my co-chairs was uh, really great fun. And if I have another chance, uh, I really look forward to organizing the next meeting in Singapore. One of the major challenges was actually not knowing how the pandemic would play out. And you know, the conferences that were held in 2020, like AACR, you know, it was very appropriate and uh, quite prudent to shift an online meeting. And the virtual presidential symposium was held on the 7th of August. It was a fantastic idea by the IASLC leadership. It allowed IASLC to uh, showcase the groundbreaking and practice-changing studies to be presented in the middle of the year. After that, the revised plan was to have a physical meeting in Singapore in January 2020. But as the pandemic uh, continued unabated, uh, we had to switch over um, to a virtual event. The switch to an online format required a revision and a reduction in the program. 
which meant we had to revise the program extensively. It also involved a change in the talks, uh, the sessions, and also the speaking invitations. So I want to take the opportunity now to thank all the track chairs and committee members uh, to respond to the revision and, and the great efforts in amending the program to fit the, uh, the shorter time, uh, times. I want to also acknowledge uh, and thank the faculty who actually accepted the invitation to speak. And speaking of stepping up, some of the faculty received their invites uh, less than a month prior to the meeting, but they really responded positively and enthusiastically. And for some of the speakers, they were actually in the middle of another wave of COVID uh, infections. So it's really, really fantastic. And I'm really, really grateful for the faculty who answered the call for help. I salute you guys. Another issue planning the online meeting is the technical aspects of holding a virtual meeting. And for many of us, it was a novel experience. The IASLC has had some experience with organizing the recent North American Conference on Lung Cancer. It was a smaller meeting though, and this is a global meeting with thousands of delegates in various different time zones. So it required a different approach and a different platform was used. And as you know, there were several technical glitches including one on the final day. I'm really sorry about uh, these unfortunate events. We're going to learn more about this to try to prevent this from happening again in future online uh, meetings. Thank you. I think, you know, when we imagine how changes took place last year for the World Conference along cancer, I imagine a large wedding with very large families. But in this time, all the family members are in different time zones all majority are healthcare workers are working extra. So we really salute the, the opportunity to like innovate and able to evolve based on our current situation. And something that we love about the World Conference on Lung Cancer is the friendship, the networking, and the science presented. It is a meeting that I have been looking forward to attending every year since I was a first year resident. So we're going to talk a little bit about the science. I think the first thing we're going to talk is about Co-Break 100, uh, the phase two results of Sotorazib and KRAS-G12C and no small cell lung cancer, previously treated patients. I think many of us were waiting for these results. This was presented in the presidential symposium by Dr. Rob Lee, the sample size was 126 patients, 81% have previous chemotherapy and immunotherapy. Their response rate was 37.1%, duration of response around 10 months, and progression-free survival median progression-free survival was 6.8 months. You show a good safety profile as G12C is not expected in normal tissue and as we were seeing the conference virtual, I think this presentation took a lot of the Twitter interactions and a lot of the Facebook comments. And particularly, I saw a lot of engagement from patients about this data being presented. Stephen, what do you think about this data? Yeah, I mean, to me, this is a, an absolute win. Make no mistake about it. The response rate of 37.1%. You know, for KRAS, this was long thought undruggable. Uh, we now have a targeted agent with a phenomenal safety profile that has a, a response rate that's, I, I think, quite good. Granted, this is not, you know, osimertinib and EGFR. This is not electinibrigatinib and ALK. The a 37%, though, is much better than alternative, which would be dostaxel ramiseramab in this setting. 
Nehmer. Remember that offers a response rate of 23%. PFS there's around four to five months. So this compares very favorably. I think it's probably a little too low for frontline use, monotherapy. So we'll look to combinations uh, in the first line setting. That'll be the next step. Unless we can further enrich the population, really find out who those really durable responders were. Uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity uh, in KRAS. And you know, perhaps we can develop additional biomarkers for Sotorasa beyond just KRAS. Uh, but to me, this was big news, uh, really a, a highlight uh, of the meeting for me. We saw a lot of targeted agents. Actually, we saw results for some of the drugs targeting EGFR exon 20 insertions too. Similarly, these are, are mutations that, you know, they're in EGFR, but they're not the common sensitizing mutations. And so the available TKIs are not very effective. We do not have an approved targeted agent for an EGFR exon 20 insertion. Fortunately, we do have two different drugs that now have FDA breakthrough designation. The first was amivantamab. It's a bispecific antibody, targets EGFR and MET. Uh, that's being explored in a couple different settings. And at this meeting, Ross, we saw an update on the Chrysalis trial that was given to us by Dr. Josh Sabari uh, in EGFR Oxon 20. The response rate with amivantamab, 40%. The duration of response, just over 11 months with a median progression-free survival, 8.3 months, median overall survival, almost two years, and and was was relatively well tolerated. Uh, what were your impressions of, of those data? I know you were pretty excited about that. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the uncommon EGF mutations, there's a whole array of different agents now, and you mentioned a couple of them, the TKI, which is uh, mobocertinib, and also the bipacific, which is and the Ventanab, covering both, um, targeting both EGF and MET. And Ventanab is really well tolerated as shown in the data. Very few patients had to discontinue from the drug because of uh, treatment-related toxicities. And the treatment-related toxicities were what we kind of used to with the use of uh, EGFR uh, inhibitors, which includes things like uh, skin rash and also diarrhea. And these uh, uh, side effects are actually low-grade, mainly one and two. So we're familiar with the uh, toxicities of uh, Ventanab, And with Mobocertinib, or previously known as TEC-788. As you mentioned, there's been no uh, inhibitors um, approved for the uncommon mutations, and exon uh, 20 insertion mutations is very resistant to uh, the approved AGFRTKIs. And as you mentioned before, it has a breakthrough therapy designation, and the abstract that was presented that had two different cohorts, one was the dose expansion cohort, and the other one was uh, those who had prior uh, platinum chemotherapy. The response rate was uh, was reasonable, around about 25%. The duration response was quite impressive, uh, around about 14 months, and the TFS was around about seven months. So the side effects were, again, very similar to what we know with EGFI inhibitors, uh, mainly uh, that was diarrhea. I think around about 16 to 20% of patients had grade three diarrhea. But in my experience, the use of prophylactic antidiarrheal medications can actually overcome this. There was also improvement in the quality of life with, with, um, with, uh, with the use of mobocytin as well. Steve? And, you know, all this data is very interested, particularly I care for many women with lung cancer, and this is a group of population as we introduce next gene sequencing that we're learning to treat, we're learning to introduce. And, and sometimes it can be difficult, you know, to talk to patients with EGFR exon 20 insertion, particularly if they're active online to explain like, 
yes, CGFR, but it's not the same. And, and sometimes that brings a degree of disappointment to patients because they get diagnosed with lung cancer, they go and join a disease group as specific, but they're no part of that group. So I think seeing these targeted agents is, is very exciting. The diarrhea, it is a reality. I had a few patients in some of the trials, and, and I agree with you, Ross, the prophylaxis and the education is very important, you know, to have the opportunity to record the baseline bowel movements before all of that in educating our patients. But I, I'm very excited. I have a few patients who are looking forward to the data, and they joined the meeting to hear about the data as they may benefit from these agents in the future. Another important presentation in the Presidential Symposium was LCNC3 by Dr. Jay Lee. This is the study that explores neoadjuvant atisoluzumab, anti-PD-1 antibody for resectable non-small cell lung cancer. And this is a very particular interest to me as I, I evaluate and study the effects of these agents and fer in fertility in younger women. So I was really looking forward to this. Patients receive only two doses of immunotherapy followed by surgery. And we have a major pathologic response of 21%, a pathologic complete response of 7%. Surgery was delayed by 10 days in 19 patients, 12%. But we didn't see any new safety signals. As we have seen, these agents are moving. You know, we started with second line, no small cell lung cancer, and now we're talking about neoadjuvant studies. And I would love to hear Stephen's opinion about these data. Yeah, I, I think they're exciting. You know, I, I think that this is the future with neoadjuvant immunotherapy. You know, we've seen studies, you know, over the last uh, a couple of years with some comparable results. We've seen studies with higher rates of, uh, you know, NPR, major pathologic response and, and PCR, pathologic complete response. But we have never seen a monotherapy study this large. This is a big study. I, I think though the, the jury's out a little bit. We're, we're excited, but, you know, one of the big questions that we still have is, you know, does NPR and or PCR, do these predict survival? And, and I have to say with immunotherapy, we we just don't know yet. I would personally put a little more stock in pathologic CR than major pathologic response just feels more objective, but we need longer follow-up. We need randomized data. I, I think this is the future. Once this, um, you know, if the data supports the use in the, in the, in the, in, in the community, we, there has to be close cooperation and coordination between the uh, thoracic surgeon as well as the, uh, the medical oncologist especially in the community, because all these trials actually of the new agent immunotherapies, other single agent or combination is done in academic centers. And they have uh, the backup of the infrastructure to allow, you know, management of, of, of toxicities. The, the, the staff are more familiar with the use of immune uh, agents. So uh, having said that, though, the community oncologies uh, should be prepared because of the widespread use of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors in the advanced stage and in the locally advanced stage setting. But it does require a closer cooperation with the, with the surgeons. Then. It's a huge point, Ross. That's a huge point because, you know, this is a new paradigm. And it's like when we switched from open thoracotomy to advanced, there's a learning curve, there's experience, and we can see sometimes nodal flares. We saw that with um, the NeoStar study. We have to be sure that our surgeons, our pulmonologists, our, our oncology, our colleagues 
know that you know you can have atypical responses, you can have these nodal responses that are not progression of disease that are really related to this new modality of treatment. And and so we we have to learn the results, but we have to learn all the nuance in delivering this properly. And and that's a great point. We you know it's there's going to be a lot of education implementing this, integrating this into our workflow. But it's exciting. I, I think it's the future. And I have to say, I think this summarizes the importance of the, the multidisciplinary work. So having a few patients in new adjuvant trials is very important to stay in touch with your surgeon, like and having a conversation with the patient about the risk. Because I did had a patient that had a complication before the surgery. So just educate about this is what we're doing. There is a risk that you may develop immune-related adverse event and have protocols in place of how to treat these patients if the immune-related adverse event is hypothyroidism without delaying therapy. I think that's also quite important. And what makes a lot of my own patients very nervous about the new adjuvant studies is will this delay therapy because you're telling me this is the percentage of adverse events. But I think in summary, it's very exciting data. And we have learned from the breast cancer world that new adjuvant therapy is something that needs to be explored in lung cancer as well. Yeah, these are these are important studies. This is a big yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, a long time ago when I was in training, the, uh, the, new, the new adjuvant gastric studies were first, first uh, came out, like the ones from David Cunningham, uh, the use of new adjuvant um, chemotherapy. The surgeon's really nervous, but I think the study like Rio 2, for example, really showed that it was safe to deliver systemic therapy in the new adjuvant setting and really convinced the surgeons that it actually does improve outcomes. Yeah. I think that the study was done really well. It was, you know, at every level, you know, multidisciplinary involvement in trial design. And, you know, the data were presented by Dr. Jay Lee, who's a surgeon. Uh, and, you know, we hear anecdotally changes in fibrosis uh, affecting surgery, but really hearing uh, the operative uh, complications or lack thereof from a surgeon, I think that goes a long way. So I think that these studies are being done the right way. Uh, I also saw a lot of small cell data presented at this meeting, uh, Ross. I saw some nice data from AMG 757, where we had an update from Dr. Taufik Awanakoko in one of the last sessions. As we remember, AMG 757, this is a bite molecule that targets DLNL3. That's a protein that's highly expressed on small cell lung cancer, on large cell neuroendocrine, and not normal tissue. So it makes it an appealing target. And rovalpatuzumab tesserine, or ROVA-T, was an antibody drug conjugate that we were pretty excited about a couple of years ago because it does target DLL3. It showed efficacy, no question about that, but was just far too toxic. AMG 757 also targets DLL3, but instead of being coupled to a cytotoxic payload, it really is uh, coupled to an, an antibody that binds CD3 and brings in T cells that then mediates an anti-tumor response. Now, this study is ongoing and still enrolling. This is an early look, but we saw responses. The response rate they reported was 14%. But really the encouraging signal, here's the durability, about one in five, we're still ongoing at six months. And personally, I'm excited to see these data mature as really a strategy to force an immune-mediated anti-tumor response. Yes, yeah, Steve. So the treatment for small cell lung cancer has been really challenging for the last so many decades. And you know, through work from like for yourself and also uh, with um, Luis Pezares, you know, the addition of atezolizumab and developing that to chemotherapy in the first line setting has improved survival, but very little progress has been made in the second line setting. You mentioned about robot T, uh, there's uh, other agents uh, like the Vectinin, which 
actually didn't make it in the randomized setting. So you mentioned it, the response rate is quite modest uh, with AMG 757 around about 15%, but the sample size is small and it's certainly worth uh, um, further exploring with a larger sample size and, and, and dose escalation because this is a huge area of net need. And what do we do with patients who have progressed uh, in the first line setting, usually with, uh, after being exposed to immune checkpoint inhibitors as well? We also need to see whether increasing the dose will see increasing activity, which may actually see an increased risk of, uh, uh, of side effects, such as cytokine release syndrome. In that particular phase one study, only one patient uh, out of 50 or thereabouts had a, C, a grade three CRS. So it's uh, quite well tolerated. But we've got to be careful about selecting these patients because these are pre-treated small cell lung cancer patients. They often have a lot of comorbidities as well as a heavy disease burden. So in my limited experience using um, bi-Pacific antibodies, T-cell engages, CRS is real. I mean, it may not be grade three, but grade, even grade one and grade two can uh, be challenging to manage in patients who are, have a quite dodgy performance status or heavy disease burden, Steve. Yeah, it's a, a good another point where we need education. This is a new type of treatment, and yeah, I agree. When when we implement this outside of academic centers, outside these experience centers, will we see more cytokine release? Will we see worse outcomes with low grade CRS? I think that remains to be seen. But if this is a drug that goes forward, it's going to take a lot of training to really do this safely to do it properly. Um, and there's there's another interesting abstract in the small cell oral session and really kudos to the selection committee for for going a little outside just therapeutics here this one focused more on the biology there was one report from uh, dr nobuyuki takahashi um, here at the nci who looked at germline whole exome sequencing and they found germline pathogenic variants in almost half 44 percent of small cell lung cancer cases now, when we see someone with, with small cell lung cancer, very strong link with smoking, we take a family history and often we will see a family history of smoking, but I don't know about the two of you. I, I always attributed that in the past to really just a familial behavior, really just the family smoked and, and it was sort of a, a common behavior, a common exposure. These data make us maybe rethink that. Maybe there is some hereditary component, at least to the risk of developing this. Yeah, I totally agree. I was I was thought that, that like you said, good behavioral thing or really passive smoking that that there was that link with the, the familial or the family members getting the same disease. And who in the mind would think that uh, small cell lung cancer, which is well known to be a smoking related disease, will have some sort of underlying uh, germline um, basis to this? So it's really really fascinating data. And I, I think to add to all of that is that it's very exciting to see that no, that small cell lung cancer is taking a bigger stage at our meeting. We are talking more about it. We're seeing more data being presented, and we're trying to understand this very complex disease. We lose patients to this disease every day, and I think, you know, it has remained like the black cloud around lung cancer. And Along those lines, we're going to have a conference dedicated to a small cell lung cancer, and that is something that I'm looking forward to. And we are are getting to to learn more about something that often was seen in the corner as the black sheet of lung cancer, and now we're seeing it more like this is the new target, this is the new challenge, and and that's quite exciting to me and to many patients, patient advocates, scientists. In trainees, I have seen how our fellows are now more interested about 
small cell lung cancers, not only first-line therapy, now we have second-line therapies, introduction or immunotherapy. So along those lines, there were two think press conferences that stood out for me at work conference on lung cancer. One was focusing disparities on lung cancer, something I'm very passionate about and something that we see every day in our clinics. And another one was about COVID-19 and lung cancer. COVID-19 came, changed our lives, our practices, or conference to a virtual f- format. So I would like to just talk a little bit about the disparities aspect that was discussed in one of these press conferences. And we have to see lung cancer disparities, not only with the disparities of getting access to care. There are many disparities in the disease, a smoking sensation. Minority groups are less likely to receive a smoking sensation education or being provided medications to help with that. So the disparities are multi-level for this disease. Some data has shown that white men, educated white men, live five times longer than uneducated, like with lower levels of education for black men. Also, patients with no insurance are most likely to refuse treatment compared to patients with insurance regardless of the disease being a stage four and knowing that they prolonged survival. And I think one of the disparities that's very striking to me is about lung cancer screening. Most of the trials for lung cancer screening included white patients. So we're using data that was collected for a majority white patients and we extrapolated it for the rest of the population. And with in the lung cancer screening, we also know that only a few women were included in these trials, including the Nelson trial. So this press conference brought the importance that these parties are not only access to care, it's about smoking sensation, lung cancer screening, survivorship, recruitment into lung cancer clinical trials, which is still very poor for minorities, uh, underrepresented groups in which only a handful of Black, Hispanics, or Native Americans are recruited and these large studies with thousands of patients. And of course, I think there is data about COVID and lung cancer. And I would love to hear, Stephen, what was your thought about this data and the press conference of COVID-19 and lung cancer? You know, I, th- I think we're doing a, a good job at looking at the impact COVID-19 is having on this early on uh, and really trying to modify our behaviors, our practices, try to minimize that impact to make sure we're not uh, sacrificing cancer outcomes uh, while still maintaining safety. And, and I thought the, the FEME conference was a really re- refreshing way to, to highlight some of the data presented that, at World Lung. I know that there was a study from Longevity that looked at a couple hundred, 300 patients with lung cancer and really asked them about the anxiety about access to lung cancer care, about how prepared they are to navigate that care, what information they need. And the data I thought were kind of a wake-up call. You know, almost all the patients, 96% were concerned that the pandemic would affect their care. 46% reported they had already experienced interruptions in lung cancer care. Um, And, you know, lung cancer is not a disease that waits. It's a very unforgiving cancer, and we need to be sure that we have plans in place and we communicate that to our current patients and to our future patients and making sure our patients know that we are prepared to deliver the care they need safely. There was a study from Barcelona led by Dr. Roxana Reyes uh, that looked at new lung cancer cases during COVID and then looked at the same time period in 2019 to a recent historical comparison in the same area. They found a decrease in the incidence by 38%. And that is not 
you know, a, a biologic difference. It's not from preventative medicine. That's really undiagnosed cases. And what they saw was patients diagnosed now with non-small cell lung cancer are more symptomatic. They have more severe disease compared to the pre-COVID era. And so this is upstaging cancers. It is impacting outcomes and care. And we need to understand that, to acknowledge that, and to really try to head that off. And you know, with, with lung cancer in particular, early diagnosis is the key. And this is having an impact on, on screening as well. You know, on, on that note, I think this was a, a, a great meeting, a, a great source of data for screening. You mentioned some of the, the press conferences, some of the studies we had. There was a, a big plenary presentation as well in the Taiwanese talent study. Ross, impressions on that presentation? Yeah, thanks, Steve. So we know that from previous uh, screening trials like the NLST study and also the Nelson trial, the main focus for patients at a high risk of lung cancer from smoking. The TALENT study, which is a lung cancer screening study in Taiwan, around about 12,000 subjects were screened and about 2.6% of lung cancer was detected in the study population. And this study and these results are really important for several reasons. Firstly, the TALENT study found more cases of lung cancer compared to the NLST study, which found around 1.1% detection and the Nelson study around about 0.9%. And the second important um, aspect is that this study was conducted in subjects who were actually high risk, but were never smokers, as opposed to being heavy smokers. So that is a big difference. We know for years that the biology of um, never smoking non-smell cell lung cancer is totally different from uh, smoking-related non-smell cell lung cancer. So this is a really big study. And I was really surprised that the detection rates were actually higher in never smokers in East Asia, in Taiwan, compared to the uh, uh, two previous screening trials that I mentioned. We do have to uh, wait for further data to see whether there's any impact on mortality. Tone. So that's actually one thing that we have to wait for, is the impact on uh, mortality. Uh, but it does raise uh, questions about whether our approach to um, managing pulmonary nodules in patients from East Asia should be different from that from Europe or North America. Narjus, I know this is an area you're, you're involved in as well. Do you have impressions on the talent data? I think what Ross mentioned about the never smokers is quite of interest to me. Um, I think we are losing younger women. We're seeing younger women every day more and more being diagnosed with lung cancer. And Sometimes we feel impotent of how can we diagnose this woman, you know, earlier or trying to increase the awareness. So having that data for talent open a door that, yes, we can do studies for these younger women and men. They're never smokers or very light smokers. Uh, they're often excluded from lung cancer screening. But I yeah, think- in contrast, sorry, in contrast to the other two studies, the majority of patients were actually women, about three quarters of patients or female gender. So, so that's uh, another contrast to the uh, Nelson study and the uh, NLST study as well. Yes, and that's what I think now the talent study is my favorite screening study, but <laughs> um, I think it's very important. And I see light about doing studies in which we can in- expand the inclusion criteria. Because a lot of the inclusion criteria for the lung cancer screening trials comes from epidemiologic data that tends to be very unique to the region. So this shows that maybe it's time to do a larger screening trial 
that we recruit patients all across the globe, hopefully, with um, inclusion of all genders, races, and different backgrounds, as well as smoking history and family history. And family history, yes, exactly. <laughs> that was the unique aspect is that family history was the uh, uh, high risk factor for detection of lung cancer. Yeah, it was quite high. I was, I was really struck by that. It was about 3% uh, um, uh, detection in patients with a family history of, uh, of lung cancer. But I think it speaks to the fact that we, we really don't know what causes these non-smoking-related cancers yet, and, and we have a lot of work to do. And I think that you know, when we, we solve that puzzle, I think we'll go a long way to early identification and hopefully prevention. So excellent work. This is a great meeting. You know, we could talk about the science all day, but, you know, for those who missed the meeting, who want to go back and listen to these presentations, the the great presentation on on talent, a great talk by Jill Feldman about clinical trial design and and inclusion criteria, some great plenary sessions. We can still find the content, right, Ross? How can our our listeners watch the content that they might have missed? Yeah, for the first time, the IASLC will be uh, leave the WCLC meeting platform and for those uh, who are interested, they can go to the meeting platform to view uh, the slides and also uh, download the, uh, the slides. If you have any questions related to accessing the program or you need more information, please reach out to the membership team at the IASLC. And this has been a great conversation about the science and about the meeting. You know, I think each stock has helped us learn more about the disease, meet other investigators, and also learn about the benefits and the challenges of having virtual meetings. We're in January, 2021. I think virtual meetings have started in March or last year or so. And now we know that the next World Conference on Lung Cancer is also gonna be virtual. So I think it would be good to share, you know, a few observations, the good and the bad about the virtual meetings. I think something I found very helpful is that it allows for people that had family needs to attend the meeting easily, right? Like traveling to Singapore, which way I was looking forward to can be very difficult for people that have other family responsibilities that have increased during COVID-19 times, virtual learning, caring for the elderly. So that has been one of the good things about virtual meetings. I think in my own cases, I also have increased the number of coffees I drink during virtual meetings because it's just easy to go and make an espresso. I don't have to wait online for my next coffee. So that has been a good thing. I think a challenge, I think for many of us that are also clinicians is that it can be harder sometimes to block your calendar and say no to a patient because you're attending a meeting, but you're here still. So for me, I think that's been the hardest thing to block the time to be able to do it. And many, the work conference on cancer happens in the weekend, but there's still some days during the week. So I would love to hear where some of the challenges and benefits, Stephen, that you have seen for the virtual format for the work conference on cancer. You know, that, I think that that last one's really an important one, blocking out your calendar. Because, you know, this meeting, because it was on Singapore time, I'm on Eastern Standard time, I, I had clinic during the day, and then I would do the meeting in the evening. And, you know, it's kind of burning it at both ends. And like I said, it's hard when I'm in town to not agree to see a patient last minute, to not sort of follow up on scans or go in to see a hospitalized patient. But 
Um, as much as you can, you really want to try to devote the time to the meeting. There's a lot of data and we owe it to our patients to really be up to date with the, the latest developments in this disease. And, and so that's an important aspect of what we do as a thoracic oncologist. Um, I think that, you know, I, I enjoyed the travel as well. I, I like seeing my patients and and or my colleagues and, and friends face to face. But like you said, the time with family has been welcome. Uh, I think it's nice to maybe reduce our carbon footprint as well. I think that's probably for the better. Ultimately, I do think that we'll have hybrid meetings. I think there'll still be some face-to-face meetings. And I think the part I miss the most is is just hearing that sort of big data live and in person, getting that initial reaction with my peers, with you know, sitting next to you two, sitting next to my colleagues. I think that, you know, when someone rolls their eyes or sort of nudges me in the ribs about a statement that we don't necessarily agree with, I don't get those initial reactions. And I think that's that's kind of important. We work out the flaws in the data, we work out those biases together. And when I only have myself in a room, I don't get the the benefit of having this added perspective that others do. That's hard to get virtually. But you know, the virtual format increases accessibility globally, which is important. Ross, let's look ahead. You know, uh, WCLC 21 will be virtual. Any words of wisdom to doctors Harpole, Higgins, and Stinchcomb as they, they plan that meeting? Thanks, Steve. My advice to Drs. Harpole, Higgins, and, and Tom Stinchcomb is to plan early, be very flexible, and also be adaptable for last-minute changes. And finally, to really just enjoy the moment. Just enjoy the planning. Don't let the conference um, uh, actually consume you. Just, just like, just relax and, and, and take it as, as as a fun thing. It may sound stressful, but actually, at the end of the day, it, it was quite fun. I, I had uh, it was great working with uh, my co-chairs and also working with the team from ICS. We've been really uh, fortunate to have Grit and her team from ICS. They've been organizing the World Lung Conference for many years, really. So they have great continuity and profession, professionalism. I'm so really happy if uh, Dr. Harpo and, and Higgins and, uh, and Stinchcomb, if they need any advice, just drop me a line anytime. Sure. I'll, I'll provide your cell phone at the end of this podcast. Uh, you know, no conversation about WCLC would be complete without a, a story about your own most memorable meeting, Ross, besides this one, of course, which, which I personally will never forget. Do you have a particular uh, WCLC that stands out to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. You got me here. Uh, well, every single World Lung Conference I've attended has been fantastic. It's the great science, uh, the practice-changing data being presented, catching up with old friends or making new ones, and then experiencing the food and cultural offerings of that particular host country. So I'll give you a couple of examples. The World Lung Conference in Toronto was actually personally was a highlight. It was my first time in Canada. I also managed to visit Niagara Falls as well as other attractions. And uh, in Power 133 was presented at the presidential symposium by Stephen Liu. <laughs> there was one meeting a few years back. I can't remember which one. I was actually a discussant, but there were some technical issues and my slides were not able to display on the projector, nor on the podium monitor. So I actually had to retrieve my laptop uh, to actually present uh, my discussion. But unfortunately, the audience couldn't see any of the slides. So that to me was actually memorable, but in a different way. I'm sure no one else was, was up to the task uh, quite like you. Those are, those are great, great memories, Ross. And I have to share the Toronto 2018, I think as junior faculty, I still remember uh, when Stephen was presented the data and he said, for the first time in these many years, we have a positive study. And for a second, 
there was thousands of oncologists and healthcare providers that was just dead silence waiting for that Kaplan mayor. I still remember like it was yesterday and I was a fellow looking for my first job and then seeing this. And, and I still remember, no, because you're here, Stephen. It's just because <laughs> it was a moment. And I remember my co-fellow said, hashtag goals. And I, I remember like yesterday. So 2018 Toronto is still deep in my memory and will be for 20 years, thanks to that presentation. Yeah, same here, same here. Thank you, Nurtis. So now we're wrapping up this podcast. Stephen and I would like to thank you for listening. And we really would like to thank Ross for making the time today. Also, Drs. G. Longwood and Dr. Daniel Tan for working with Ross and adapting to having our first fully virtual work conference along cancer. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, it was really great fun. It was very enjoyable to be part of this podcast. I'd like to thank also my co-chairs, Ilong Wu and Daniel Tan. And I'd like to express my gratitude to the IASLC staff, uh, led by Dave Mesco and Kristen. The ISLAC Board of Directors for their leadership, the track chairs, track members, the faculty for their fantastic contributions. And finally, to the conference registrants and also to the patients, which actually made this conference successful. I also want to thank the listeners for tuning in. And I really look forward to catching up and meeting up with uh, both of you and also my other friends and colleagues when the travel restrictions are over eventually. Thanks. We're, we're recording this, Ross, so we're going to hold you to that. That's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope you'll tune in on the first and third Mondays of every month to give us a listen. Don't forget to like the podcast, to share it with your colleagues and friends. Stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 